Right. But like the full self-driving subscription is like having someone subscribe to like the new luxury package in their vehicle that has heated and cooled seats, but like the seats are only warm. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the uh, founder of the Human Driving Association, the uh, editor-at-large at thedrive.com, and the director of special operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show. And I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor over at TechCrunch. And today, and I'm and recently back, back from, from vacation. vacation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome so back, Kirsten. Refreshed. Uh, thanks for not burning the place down while I was gone. Um, I think today is the day where we should talk about uh, deals and deployments and not commercial deployments, but let's be clear, testing deployments, we're not there yet. Um, but there's been a, a rash of them. Yeah. And summer, summer's normally like a chill, quiet time and not, not, not now. AVs are, um, or AV related businesses are definitely making headlines. Um in the past couple weeks. Do we want to start with the latest news or? Sure. I mean, do you want to talk about Mobileye or should we talk about the story that I predicted five weeks ago? Wait a second. Let's, Actually, let's I didn't start with Mobileye because that, that just, that just launched. Or they, like as we're recording this, that's the most recent bit of news. We were just discussing it before we started recording. Alex just is champing at the bit here. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Well, um, you know what I find Fascinating, entertaining about the Mobileye news. For uh, those who are unaware, Mobileye has announced that they're testing um, autonomous vehicles in New York City. Uh, and the video that they showed, it shows a vision, a camera-only vehicle going through the streets of New York, which they've shown in other cities, um, which, and they claim their stack later will be fused with a LiDAR um, stack. And, and radar. Is, mm-hmm. And radar. And that, and, that, and that fuse that this will be, you know... Um, your go-to-market uh, technology. Well, what I find really amazing about it is uh, all these Tesla fanboys who are, you know, raving about vision-only approaches have nev- nothing to say uh, when Mobileye, you know, rolls around various cities uh, with a, a train safety driver and a camera-only stack, and then says, despite that, they're still going to add radar and lidar because that's the way to do it. Uh, so I'm, I-, I feel like I may have to go on Twitter. In the next few days and bait some of these Tesla guys because if they if they believe what they're cooking, then they have to swallow the the mobile eye cactus. But that's just, that's just me, that's which is me. difficult because there's obvious uh, diff- maybe difficult for them because there's obvious history between mobile eye and Tesla. Right, right. Well, but but also, I mean, it is. I, I think it. it you know, it's one of those things that kind of shows um, the level at which people engage with this stuff um, and sort of you know, the fact that pe- a lot of people do just see this, you know, very complex field of, of technological development as like an internet, like, like argument game or something. Because, I mean, I, I without even, you know, trolling, I get people every time Mobileye shows one of these videos saying, see, look, you know. You you can do autonomous driving with vision only, and you're wrong. And first of all, like you know, I've never said that it's impossible to do autonomous driving with vision only. But but then also they they completely ignore this this point. And and you know, to be fair, like Mobilize approach is a little different. Developing sort of in a way two separate stacks, one that's vision only and one that's 
LiDAR radar, and then sort of, as you say, fusing them. Um, but, but the reality is, is that here you have, you know, a, a company that's able to go out, record a video that, you know, no, no FSD beta tester is going to you know be able to show anything close to what they just showed in New York, let alone all the stuff they've done in Tel Aviv and Munich. Um, but even with that level of performance, uh, you know, they're still not going to deploy a camera only system uh, for, for fully autonomous driving. Uh, to me, I think when you see that, it's like if that's it, if that doesn't convince you that Tesla is full of it and scamming, basically, like what what possibly what more could you possibly need? Well, here's what my prediction of their argument is going to be. It's going to be something like, um, remember when, um, well, I, I don't know if you remember this, but um, I've sometimes, you know, received the occasional hate mail from, you know, Tesla fans. It's been a while, what? but, what? <laughs> but one of their favorite arguments is that like, you don't even know, you don't even know what they're testing. Like Elon's clearly working on something right now. Can't explain what it is but that's actually X. And so I think a very, you know, like the classic argument will be like, mobile is really just going to go all camera. Just watch. Like you don't even know what's going to happen. So <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like ignoring everything that the company's saying and then just, you know, um, focusing on what, what would validate, um, you know, what Tesla's approach is. You know, I, I heard a wonderful or a wonderfully entertaining um, argument made on Twitter, attacking me, saying uh, about uh, vision-only systems. And, they, and what was it? It was like some of the effect of um, uh, sensors don't matter, um, judgment does. And so okay. that's really interesting because when you think about, if you want to commercialize. But how can you make a judgment without uh, actually being able to understand the world to around see. you? Yeah, and, and so it's amazing. Um, by that standard, people who can't see or don't see well, if, if they're really well-trained, people later in life can just drive anyway. But, you know, conceptually, like if you want to commercialize autonomous vehicle tech and you want to do it at scale, you want to do it in four seasons, then you want technology um, that will mitigate the effects of four seasons of weather. Mm-hmm. And so if you put, let's imagine you have two vehicles and they have identical, I mean, let's imagine two people, all right, two people with identical experience, skills, and training. And one of them can only see with their eyes and the other has the advantage of low light cameras or radar and LIDAR. I mean, I'm, I'm, as I did when I drove across country, clearly you're going to be able to do things that the guy who only has eyes can't do. It's why military pilots use infrared, you know, vision and thermal cameras. Fly. Yeah, yeah, like I mean, by that standard, the army should have stopped development of all, you know, tank optics, you know, back in the '60s. I mean, this it just doesn't make. If you believe in innovation, you believe it in innovation wherever you can find it, and you advance the state of the art, and you use it, and you use it at scale. You bring down costs, and then you move on. And so these arguments are very funny. Um, I would well, never this- teach a class like in a university about science and argue this thing is good enough and we're good as it is. Let's just not go any further. Right. Yeah. Well, I, and wouldn't, they- I wouldn't like say perception doesn't matter. And then in the same breath say that, you know, we're going to win because data, like where's that data coming from? It's coming from your perception stuff. Like right. uh, anyway, go ahead, Kirsten. So, well, I was going to say, it's probably worth like very, very briefly describing what mobile eye, cause everyone focuses on like the cameras only, but there's more involved. So their basic, idea is 
I call it, or I typically write about it as a three-pronged approach. So they basically take a redundant sensing subsystem. So that's based on camera and then radar and LIDAR technology. So these are the redundancies. Then they have this um, mapping system. They call it the REM mapping system. And then this um, RSS driving policy. This is that responsible responsibility-sensitive safety driving policy that you know, Mobileye put together and is, has um, you know, put a white paper out on. And so the mapping system piece is kind of interesting Very because it's basically taking data crowdsourced that is on like more than a million vehicles at this point, that a vehicle is equipped with Mobileye technology, and they're using that to build the high-definition maps um, to support both ADAS and autonomous driving systems. So, and, and they actually have like a little revenue source. Back in 2019, I wrote about the company um, using this um, mapping um, mapping data to basically create detailed maps of the UK's roads and infrastructure, and then sort of retrofit and sell that information um, to the local, like. Um, using local utility fleets to collect volumes of this data. And then I think selling that data back to, um, you know, the local government so that they can understand like infrastructure issues. So there's like all these different layers. It's way more involved than I think people might realize because they focus just on the camera piece. Uh, I'm curious, Kirsten, do you know uh, anything about, whose cars Mobileye is gathering data from other than their own test vehicles? So, well, back in, back in 2019, they actually equipped, um, uh, ordnance survey, which is a UK mapping agency. They had like these fleets of vehicles and Mobileye, you know, this mapping, um, these sensors were, were collecting data for this mapping piece for in that case. But my understanding is that, there's nearly a million vehicles equipped with this. So these aren't mobile fleets. These are, uh, I believe, just consumer vehicles with um, equipped with mobile sensors. Yep, that's and that's the point. It's it's crowdsourced and automated, and they say that that capability is is fundamental to their ambition to deploy at scale. Um, and we can get into a little more into what that means. But but go ahead. So. Uh, so I'm curious. People ask me, and I don't have the, a full picture. So you are saying that people can buy vehicles in different parts of the world that are equipped mobile cameras from the factory as an option, or maybe it's standard. And do they have, do they have to opt in to share that data, or how does that work? So, I, I mean, Kirsten, by all means, like if, if you haven't answered this question, I'd love to hear it. But I think in general, the the context for this whole topic that I'll put out there is that both OEMs and Mobileye have been super, super, super like cagey about how much and and how like data is uh, shared by either their you know they have their aftermarket systems they have the OEM systems you know so so how much and what kind of data they're getting from those OEM uh, uh, systems is not one hundred percent clear except for in the mapping thing right so so for the mapping thing it, it you know that data is just being used to build this crowdsourced map. Um, in terms of training data, that's sort of a, a different question. But go ahead, Kirsten. Do you know any? I mean, have, have you been able to squeeze anything out of them? Because I haven't been able to. Um, I haven't. 
I don't have good details around it because for years that type of information has been not shared. The only insight that I have ever received really was when they struck this deal with Ordnance Survey, um, which is that UK mapping agency. And that was, you know, hey, we're putting this specifically on fleets and we're doing this in the UK. It's possible that they've done this elsewhere, but that isn't going to get you to a million vehicles, right? So clearly they have an OEM partner in which, or, or several and anyone familiar with Mobileye understands that like their computer vision technology is in a lot of vehicles yeah. um, and, and more than a million. So there's obviously they're working with very specific companies. Yeah. And so I, I actually, so we sort of addressed this with, uh, with Amron Joshua at CES. I, I did, you know, did an interview for their CES press conference this year. And, um, and we sort of address this because, um, you know, I mean, obviously, right, like there's this, the narrative that's out there comes from Tesla that, you know, we have this data from all these vehicles on the road and therefore, you know, um, that that is so valuable to training that that's going to make the difference for us. Um, and like that's been a very, very powerful, powerful narrative. And what was fascinating, what what Emron Cheshwood did say um, was that uh, essentially you know, using that kind of data for uh, for drive to develop driving policy, um, it, it, he kind of said it was more. I'm a little bit reading through the lines here, but like that essentially is a recipe for overfitting. That you don't need you know to develop driving policy necessarily. You know, all this data is it, it's not super valuable um, training wise. That that the more valuable use of all of this data is in the is in the map right is in generating the map because um you know you it you allow you know things like semantic segmentation and and like simply by by you know using that data to 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 segment right like what's a what's the road and what's the car and what's infrastructure right like you're already limiting the amount of things you have to make inference about inferences about um rather than putting that data into trying to make the inferences better necessarily which i think is really really hard and so that is something that both Tesla and its fans and supporters just have not engaged with at all. This argument that that the data is much much better, you know, used, you know, being fed into this this map developing system, which again they say is is fundamental to deploying at scale. Um, and the one other thing that that is really interesting about their their ambitions in terms of scale, I think every you know everyone in every technology talks about doing it at scale and and how it's harder at scale and everything. But with AVs, it is really obviously big, big topic. Um, and in part because of this mapping system, um, uh, and in part because they have an ADAS, but a whole bunch of other things, they, they're actually the only, or Mobileye is the only, or Intel is the only company that is um, sort of talking about, you know, the, the sales pitch that Tesla has been taking money for, for five years, which is you can buy a car with a autonomous driving, a truly autonomous driving option. Um, and nobody else in the space is talking about that. And so I think that definitely creates a really interesting situation here. Hey, but hey, I, Ed, do us a favor, Ed. Can you break up your comments into like bits and pieces that we can respond to? Because Kirsten's ready to talk. I think on that last point that that Mobileye isn't going to be the only company doing that. And here's why. Because another acquisition was made this month or this week um, by Woven Planet of Carmera. Carmera also has this interesting way of collecting data. They basically do a barter system where they um, provide a fleet monitoring and safety sort of system services for free to fleets. 
if they can put their tech on their sensors on their vehicle, which maps, right. Um, and they've created, um, they're an HD mapping company. They're, they were just acquired. Uh, but when I was speaking to James Kuffner, uh, who now is heading up the woven planet holdings, which is basically this entity that folds in all the stuff that they were working in, all the research stuff like TRI AD. Um, there is a venture arm called Woven Capital. There's all these little subsets. But the intent is really to uh, develop and deploy automated vehicle technology. But by talking to him, there clearly were also two paths, right? One on developing um, more, I use the word a lot, but probably need to change it, more robust <laughs> ADAS. And then also fully autonomous vehicle systems and mapping fits in there. And they clearly see a way to apply that mapping to other means that are in some ways similar to Mobileye. Kuffner basically said there are some overlaps, but there are some differences. So I'm not saying that they are like completely directly competing, but man, it's starting to kind of look like what Mobileye is doing and what Toyota is doing, maybe not identical, but they're they're certainly at the same party right now, you know, and maybe bumping into each other a little bit here and there. Well, to that, I would add that if you want to make the argument about diversity of environments, um, the penetration of Tesla vehicle sales um, is not as diverse as I think a lot of other companies, well, in this case, mobilize, uh, likely penetration of consumer vehicles and sensors is probably more diverse than Tesla's sale of cars because Tesla's just being costing what they do. There are a lot of parts of the world where you're not going to see those cars. And as a result, they're not going to be gathering data in as diverse an environment set. But I probably shouldn't go too far down this road. No, that makes sense. Because <laughs> if you look at Toyota, it's the same thing. I mean, Toyota vehicles are everywhere, right? And if you were to take what they're already doing on the automated mapping platform, which is this uh, team of mapping that uses like satellite, you know, mapping and everything like that, that was developed out of, I believe, TRIAD. And then you combine Carmera's team which is really focused on like their their more recent products are you know their prime product was the autonomous vehicle map but they are really kind of doubling down on this idea of like change i mean i'm going to have to you know i'm not going to criticize rogupta but like change as a service i was like oh gosh we have another like acronym we have to deal with <laughs> but but this idea of it can be integrated onto a third-party map. So uh, all of a sudden you see Toyota having this existing mapping data and then Carmera's technology allows for constant change and updating of this map. You see how these two things fit together and how it might benefit both consumer vehicles and also this like inbound data and then being applied to robo-taxis or some other autonomous vehicle application down the line. Yeah. So there, it seems like there's an interesting, and, and this all kind of uh, fits a little bit into um, Patrick McGee at the Financial Times wrote a big sort of trend piece uh, that came out earlier this week, 
seemed to to generate a pretty decent amount of chatter on on Twitter and stuff and and kind of the and and you know at the risk of of sort of boiling it down to one overly crude sort of point which it, it was more nuanced than this but it kind of made the argument essentially that you know that you have companies who are who are out there pursuing um you know autonomous driving technology right as a sort of longer term opportunity um but then also you know there's there's been a lot more focused lately on on driver assistance on ADAS right and and it kind of it kind of suggests that like you know ADAS you know there's a there's much more of a market short term which is not a controversial view but that sort of you know that ability to fund continued development means that the companies that do have that that ADAS business that are making money off that ADAS business can sort of leverage that into keeping the the ongoing AV development you know which has further down the road targets what what's kind of interesting about this is that is that was well, and first of all I, I'm curious both both of you you sort of see that um, situation but but maybe another layer that's being added onto this now is that you know and and the argument is that right so 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 ADAS has a short term market AV has a it's a longer farther away opportunity but if when even when they get there that it, ADAS becomes basically irrelevant. Um, and then, and then, sort of level five is almost, you know, or, or at least the idea of a, a privately owned AV that a consumer can go out and buy, and it really truly drives itself um, more or less everywhere. Um, that is also, I think, something that you know, if that comes around, um, a robo taxi is going to be as popular. Um, you know, so 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 there's sort of like you know, AV beats ADAS in the long run, but then level five potentially beats level four in the long run. So like. But but then how far out are we even talking here, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we're talking decades out, right? Yes. And who knows what kind of ecosystem of, of startups and businesses spring out of the first wave of the technology deployment. I mean, think of the first wave of the smartphone and the app ecosystem that was created. We couldn't have necessarily totally predicted what would have happened and how it's evolved. So, you know... To go too far, and I mean, we just don't know where where that's gonna lead. Um, well, but it's certainly a fun experiment. But you can say that it doesn't matter whether vehicles are human driven or self driven from the from the point of view of traffic. If every vehicle is self driven and privately owned in any given area, traffic is really not solved. That's that's so, the big the big challenge. So, if you read any of the good books about the, you know autonomous futures, you'll see this argument made time and again, which is why their their congestion pricing, which is starting to percolate in different parts of the world, is going to eventually have to be applied to the question of mixed environments: privately owned human vehicles, privately owned potentially autonomous vehicles, fleet owned <laughs> autonomous vehicles, and their and the remaining fleet owned human driven vehicles all operating in one environment uh, under some congestion pricing regime, there needs to be really smart policy around all of this. Otherwise, the same problems remain or uh, extrapolations of these problems just with more tech. I mean, you could even see traffic remaining mm, marginally improved, but safety improving dramatically. That's great. Um, but if you want to attack safely, it, if you want to attack safe, safety holistically, autonomous vehicles can't do it alone. And traffic is never good for pedestrians and cyclists, and, and or, just, or 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 capitalism or the economy. Yeah. I mean, I mean because because sitting in traffic. I mean, sure, if if everyone's in a some form of of you know we're look, we're 
talking way in the future, some form of fully autonomous vehicle, whether they're it's their personally owned vehicle or it's some sort of ride hailing or ride sharing application. And there's just more vehicles. Sure, safety goes up, but you're in traffic longer. And so that doesn't solve one of the fundamental issues. Uh, Amnon Shashua actually mentions this uh, during his presentation where he envisions a, a scenario and where eventually as the technology becomes, um, you know, more abundant and commercially deployed, that cities will also start responding by uh, putting limitations on the urban core so that there is only autonomous vehicles allowed within, let's say, an urban core. Um, and so then you kind of start to see inbound into the city center, right, where people then drop off their personally owned vehicle or the train or whatever, and then they enter into an urban situation. So congestion pricing can work. But in that scenario, it's also likely that privately owned vehicles capable of autonomous operation inside a geofence that that would arrive at the the border of the fence and then and switch automatically to autonomous control. And that congestion pricing would then automatically engage. Right. Exactly. And so so there would be some type of arbitrage. Well, there would be some kind of arbitrage and traffic market and congestion pricing would uh, would be modulated in real time based on demand and other factors. So uh, ground traffic control will become a reality, but we're still a ways away. Ed? Right. And, and the, well, the issue here is not just, you know, is it autonomous or not? It's, it's really, is it, are you talking about a fleet based approach of, so basically robo taxis, that is one fleet that, that replaces, you know, a lot of rides that are done by privately owned vehicles you know, is that something that that actually takes off, or are we looking at an autonomous future uh, that's just like sort of the car dominated one we have today? Only the cars happen to drive themselves, and the humans don't drive them. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you have a level four fleet, especially in the earlier days where the the uh, you know this is really expensive, cutting edge technology, um, the incentives for a level four robo taxi fleet are very strongly towards keeping that fleet as small as possible and utilizing it as much as possible. In fact. Um, you know, we had Ashley Nunes on a while ago to talk about sort of some of the economics of this and and like that from a sort of urbanist, you know, and congestion, certainly perspective, that is is what matters. What are the incentives? And and in a privately owned fleet, not only do you not have that incentive to keep the fleet as small as possible, but in fact, you know, uh, uh, your congestion and traffic is one of the big, uh, you know, in, in inherent limiting f- rates on it, it's self-limiting right when traffic gets bad enough you just don't go out and drive and if you have an av you're insulated from the price of that and so potentially like congestion wouldn't just stay bad it could and again with this is why policy like congestion charging that alex is talking about is going to have to be part of the mix if we get to a world of privately owned avs because the incentive would be to just um and like you only have to look at elon Musk's sales pitch he was talking about you know having a car that would just sort of follow you as you walked around like think about that. Like zero thing. occupant vehicles. Oh. I mean, what we want, what everybody wants, or let me say this: this is why I support commercial fleet autonomous vehicles because they're fully incentivized to stay in motion with the passenger and be up, so they're generating revenue. Whereas a privately owned AV, I mean, I have a Tesla. I'd love for it to be self-driving, but I would not expect that my car to be cruising, orbiting empty, a you know lower Manhattan or any city while I take a walk. Because I would expect that vehicle to be, I, I would expect to be penalized. I mean, I imagine that cities eventually are going to 
they're not there's not going to they're going to disincentivize that because it would make for a very unhappy urban centers to have fully and very fat vehicles. people by the way and very fat people by yeah. The way. yeah and so. that and that you know i mean that runs up against um you know you have this this uh, you know the the really profound desire and i think like for all of them, we can talk maybe a little bit about the the um, full self driving subscription now. But like <laughs> you know, the fact that we're five years into this, it, you know, everyone admits that it doesn't do what it says on the on the tin, right? Uh, and yet, people are willing to not just pay money for it, but even potentially a subscription to something that just isn't doesn't exist in its final. That's not you know has blown a million deadlines. I mean, this shows how deep like. People love the future, and this has been like a, a common thread throughout Tesla in a bunch of different ways. That they, they love the fact that it makes things feel futuristic for them. They feel like they're on the cutting edge without fundamentally actually changing anything on their part. It's still just a car. It's still big and heavy and powerful and status endowing as all the things of a typical car. It just kind of feels self-driving, and 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 the way they approach, you know, uh, uh, their their entire autonomous driving strategy is is fully rooted in that in that Kier, idea that that's Kierson's laughing. Kirsten, you you have a smile on your face. You're going to say something now or can I? You can. I'm just laughing at the the concept of the subscription and that it's the classic case of instead of giving, you know, not only is it con- exactly what Ed said but also a wonderful strategy so that the consumer doesn't actually think about the total price and that instead they look at the sliver you know, that then they, once they commit to, they forget about it. Well, let's do the math. Um, I'm just, let's hang on a second. So $10,000 to buy the full self-driving capability, which is not self-driving, divided by $199 is 50 months. So um, that's uh, four years. So Right. And so I'm sure that people are betting that by in four years, certainly, you know, it will have happened. It doesn't matter because you're still wasting your money by paying for something that doesn't exist yet anyway. I, I'll tell you, you know, if you, if they would name it something else, like if they would name it like auto, like autopilot plus enhanced autopilot, a month, whatever you want to call it, because the, what you're really getting are a couple of features, which are pretty good convenience features um, and a bunch of stuff that just doesn't work. Isn't this just part of the like broader trend of automakers now using software updates to basically like charge people for every little thing, you know? So I, I, I mean, what was it? BMW. It's like, Hey, if you want to upgrade to heated, um, CD seats, then here, pay this amount of money now. And Kirsten, you know, why like don't this- you do an analysis. You're, a, you're the credible, most awesome journalist in the sector. Why don't you and you have your staff do like a spreadsheet listing all the subs- of the subscription ADAS and convenience features and do like a value, you know, a value comparison. Oh, thank you for that homework assignment. <laughs> Sounds like a lot. It. Uh, no, but I mean, I mean, this is right. This is uh, like software has completely gone down this route, right? Where software is a service. I mean, there's a, the reason that everyone wants recurring revenue is because right. it's recurring revenue. You have you keep your customers instead of selling them once and then hope they come back in ten years or however long it you right. Know, it takes. But like the full self driving subscription is like having someone subscribe to like the new luxury package in their vehicle that has heated and cooled seats, but like the seats are only warm. 
Right. Well, it, what it's really like is it's like it's like um, a, a, a video game. You know how they'll do they'll announce a video game and they'll start doing pre-sales. Um, it's like instead of instead of putting a deposit up front for half the price or whatever, whatever it is, or paying the full price up front, you're subscribing to a pre-order. So you pay, you know, you're paying every month, uh, you know, until it comes out, essentially. Right. Um, and, and who on who in their right mind would 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 choose to do that, right? Especially, and again, you know, if you look at, at what, you know, what Elon Musk has said, I mean, he said in 2016 when he launched it that, or when he started taking people's money, that this was a solved problem. It's been more than that 50 month period that Alex, you know, referenced. I, you know, everyone in the, everyone credible in the sector agrees that, you know, don't hold your breath for camera only level, level five driving, which is what it's been sold as. Um, people could be in theory paying recurring revenue to Tesla forever. Uh, and never actually get what they're in theory paying for. Well, but it might this. be super awesome when it comes though. So let's pay for it now. I would say that I wish um, I had had the option to subscribe to FST capability and not uh, lease a Tesla with the uh, 10K baked into my three-year lease term. Huh, okay. Yeah, but that's just but that's just me. You know, I'm still waiting. My first uh, my Tesla lease is over in April of 2022, and the contract states that I cannot buy out the car. And I I am convinced. Maybe I'm crazy that a week before the turn-in date, Tesla's going to call me and say you can buy it. Yeah, is it, it like because the, the I mean the theory at the time. I don't, it was, I don't think it was a Tesla statement. I think it was the fanboys who were saying, uh, well, obviously you can't buy it because it's an appreciating asset. By the time your first lease is up, they're going to want it back to put in the robotaxi fleet. And right. clearly that's not happening. The robotaxi fleet is coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, so we have one more piece of deal making news to oh, wait, talk wait. about. Can I, what? I'm sorry to interrupt. Is it okay, Kirsten? Yeah, of course. It's okay. So, you know, I, I, I won't shut up about elevator analogies and elevator history and business and autonomy. And um, some of your friends from ARC re, and ARC Investment Research, I know you're both smiling as I say this, right? Right? Kathy Wood, your friends. Um, uh, one of the ARC people tweeted a few days ago that they have discovered the history of electricity and the possibility of some analogies mm-hmm. to to autonomy, which I think, well, I'm not I'm not the first one to talk about it in the context of elevators, but the analogy that this person at Arc Invest threw out was that vision only approaches to autonomous vehicles are similar to alternating current, and that a full stack with lidar radar is similar to direct current. And for anyone who doesn't know the background mm-hmm. here. Um, alternating current transmits electricity at, at, over distance and direct current is not as good for that, which means you need power plants, more power plants, shorter distances to transmit electricity. So it's a good thing that we have AC power. Otherwise the nature of our cities and, and grids would look very different. That is an unbelievable analogy because it, it's just, it's dumb because it ignores failed power transmission technologies, which would include Nikola Tesla's own fail technology, which was broadcast power. And I would love to see someone who actually dig in, because not only do we have an analogy that is really powerful, we have a guy with the same name. <laughs> There's a reason that broadcast power didn't happen. 
And it's not that it was a bad idea, but that the business around it, the infrastructure required, just didn't fit the culture and society of its time. And it probably is too late to implement it. I would love to see if anyone's out there listening, if you know the, the if you know a, a lot about electrical grid build outs and the history of broadcast power and want to talk, maybe join us on the show and talk about whether this is analogous or not to vision stacks and autonomous vehicles, we'd love to have you on. If I if I were and I'm a huge fan of history and historic learning from history, uh, big believer in that. Uh, but if I were Arc, um, I would maybe focus a little more on understanding autonomous drive technology itself. It, it kind of feels like all of their analysis on the subject uh, starts with the assumption that Tesla will win and, try, and kind of works back from there. And, and then it feels like their you know historical analysis. Uh, uh, sort of is in the same vein. Um, and I feel like if they actually listen to folks uh, who have actual AVs out on the road and, uh, you know, lots of evidence for uh, the level of capability that they've developed, um, that would probably serve them better than <laughs> than seeking out historical examples. That's just now my... let's pass it off to Kirsten. Yeah. Oh, well, I think, you know, we just want to end by talking about the Aurora SPAC, right? It's really happening. It's really happening. So back in June, I wrote a story um, based on numerous sources that they were um, close to reaching a deal with reInvent Technology Partners. Why? This is the special purpose acquisition company that, and the third one um, launched by a trio of investors, LinkedIn co-founder and investor Reid Hoffman, and then um, Mark Pincus, who's known for you know Zynga, and then managing partner Michael Thompson. So this has now happened. It's been announced. Um, the enterprise, so like the pre-transaction valuation placed on Aurora was like eleven billion, um, and the implied valuation, meaning combined company, is thirteen billion. So um, to everyone out there who is like you know, commenting to me that this couldn't possibly be real. <laughs> yes, it was. And I was, I don't go to print without really being sure. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, but there's, there's, um, I, I've been digging into the S4. I'm going to have a story, I think, you know, hopefully later this week and maybe in a day. Um, just kind of like looking at some of the financial projections because there's some interesting ones in there that I haven't quite sorted out. Uh, but one thing I thought that was really interesting is um, that they kind of talk about when they're going to begin generating revenue from trucks without vehicle operators. They they pick a date. It's late 2023. And then from cars um, in late 2024. And this is according to the regulatory filings that are like, you know, are public. Um, and then... The other little interesting nugget is that they seem to be transitioning in their business model. So they expect to own and operate the trucks through 2024, which kind of makes sense because they probably will have a pretty limited number, my guess is, and they're going to want to keep everything under their umbrella. And then we'll transition to what they're calling driver as a service. Another fun acronym, this one, DOS, D-A. A S um, business model, meaning it would be like some sort of contractual, like subscription thing or whatever. 
um, sort of similar to how SaaS companies work, software as a service. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. They obviously are getting like public markets provide access to capital. Um, they have 1600 people. Their burn rate is must be insane. Um, and, you know, that's that. I will say my only other comment is that I, if you read through the document, while SPACs can be considered risky um, and can be considered a trend and a risky one at that, um, you can see the conservative approach still likely from, you know, Chris, I think Sterling and Drew are also the, the three co-founders are all pretty fairly conservative people. Um, just their financial projections are more realistic than let's say some other SPACs that have what you, filed. What do you mean, Kirsten? Well, if you look at the difference between let's say like Embark um, and Aurora, some of the financial projections of what they think they'll make in revenue is it starts just much lower for Aurora. Um, and more, um, and whereas, whereas Embark, and I think there's one, at least one other company that I was looking at, um, maybe it's plus, uh, they just, the projection, financial projections of what expected revenue is for a technology that isn't even commercially deployed yet, really, um, is very high. So I, that, that was kind of interesting to me. Culturally, what do you mean, you Kirsten? Kind of, what do you mean? I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I just said no. what I meant. Well, luckily, we have a legitimate, credible journalist, the peak of her game, looking at oh, this geez. stuff. Okay. Um, well, do you have any comments, either of you, on this not, topic? Not, not about the roast back. Oh, okay. Well, I, I have, well, no. I mean, I think, I think there's a, a you know, a, a really interesting question here about, um, you know, how what is a publicly run AV company going to be? You know, like how is it going to differ from a privately owned one? Um, and I, I just, especially in terms of, you know, uh, you know, just the public does not seem to understand this technology very well. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, uh, you have a company that is pretty obviously running a blatant scam. They are, you know, in terms of market valuation, you know, Tesla has, has basically, you know, the, the, by far the biggest valuation of any pure AV play, you know, company. Um, and they've been doing it by promising the moon and not getting even close to delivering for five years now. And still, there's been no backlash, no market, uh, fundamental you know, major market adjustments uh, around that. Um, and, and just in general, like the, the, you know, so, so, so I guess my, my concern about all this, and again, I, you know, clearly the market is favorable to, you know, um, mobility companies in general right now. Um, and it's, it's a good way to, raise money. And especially actually the other piece of this doesn't get talked about as much is that it's much harder to raise VC now from, uh, for, for mobility companies that I think they've been a little bit felt a little burnt on it, but, but, you know, uh, what kind of incentives is that going to create? Are we going to see companies, you know, sort of realize like, Oh, well, you know, if we need more money. We're going to be getting that from the general public and the general public doesn't really understand this technology at all. So, you know, there's some opportunity here to, to potentially be less, honest or, or, uh, you know, um, conservative or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't even see it as an, I don't even see it necessarily as an honesty issue, although that could be it. it. It just, it's like, it's just culturally different or like 
who is who is behind making these projections so so let's say you're public you're a retail investor you don't totally understand the tech or your understanding of the tech is um through you know following Elon Musk's Twitter account and like some basic research and um and that's where it ends right and then you look at um the projections that Aurora is making okay Aurora in 2025 i think that they're projecting a revenue of about 113 million right plus in the same year is projecting revenues of 7.3 billion it's wildly the, different. The trucking company, yeah. So that's wildly different. And so it's like, well, who who do we not just believe, but who is putting together these projections and what are they based on? Right. Um, and you know, is this that Aurora's not capturing like it, or is it that they're more realistic? It's kind of hard to know, even as someone who spends a lot of time um studying this industry and i feel like i know all the players like it, it's hard to know which one is right because we don't have anything to weigh that off of or go that off or measure it off it's easy to quantify or easier to quantify like what the revenue is going to be for an app company because there are a million apps out there that are commercially deployed and we don't really have that yet in the av space yeah, and my my concern just to to wrap this up is that is that you know on the one hand it's easy if people don't really understand this technology you know it, it, public market investors it, it's easier to to sort of hype them up and get them sort of believing like not very realistic things but then I think you know the the scary part for me is even if I'm being conservative if someone else whether this is Tesla or potentially you know it could be you know one of a number of companies in theory um, that have been much more aggressive about the about the hype. Um, you know, if, if, so, you know, if, if that sort of perception just collapses all of a sudden, like there will be fallout for the, for the entire sector. Right. And particularly because, you know, you're, if you don't have like long-term strategic investors, which in some cases might be a, you know, an automaker, it might be a, you know, an Amazon or something like that. You know, they know that, you know, they have a shared vision with these people. And, and if, you know, there are challenges along the way and they need to raise more money, they'll be able to do that because that those core strategic investors are in them for the long run. If you're publicly traded, you know, and, and something happens and you need more money, or if, if, you know, there's sort of just a, a, an earthquake in the sector because one company blows up or was revealed to be scamming or whatever else, you know, are people going to just abandon you? Uh, you just can't rely on public sector or, I mean, a public, you know, public market investors, I think the way uh, you can on others. So I, I, it's just a little, little nervous making. Well, I would predict that the all of these numbers and projections are going to change. <laughs> that's my prediction. <laughs> that's really my very risk that's, yeah, that's a big risky uh, prediction there. But um, yeah, let's see. Can't wait for those first that first quarter earnings calls from all these companies um, and so to wild. see and to see how it evolves. Yeah, earnings season is upon us, and it every SPAC so far has just um, been super interesting. And I, you know, these are companies that are all trying to put out a technology that is not yet commercially deployed. So, you know, they've got, they've got a long runway to get there. Alex, you want to talk about something else? Well, yeah, I can't really talk about this because it would be unfair to my friends at 
not at companies that are not Argo. And of course, it's just, it's a little sensitive. So, okay. um, but I have a, a, a loosely related, this DAS acronym, driving driver as a service. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, also reminds me of, you know, Waymo refers to their technology, the Waymo driver. Right. In anticipation of some future time when somebody comes along and says, objects to autonomy or automation in general, uh, whether it's valid or not, uh, around the question of job creation, job loss, job replacement. I wonder if calling one's technology a driver uh, anthropomorphizes it, and if it's perhaps not wise to name technologies after people or things people do. For example, uh, one could also call yeah, an autonomous stack, you know, like with the way Intel does it, like powered by powered by Argo, powered by Waymo, powered by whatever, which is a very different. Imagine if if word processor came out and they were called, you know, um, right, you know, AI AI typists, yeah. you know. I'm just, I think that they, you know, maybe I watched too much of the Animatrix, which was the Matrix prequel, which and which depicts like the era before AI becomes, you know, all dominant. But I think that societally, it's important that things are not just called names we remember, but names which convey, I don't want to say non-threatening messages, but um, these are tools. And they're not, you know, AI is not magic. And they probably should be referred to and contextualized as tools. Yeah, I mean, I get that. I I have to noodle on that one because it, I get the... I get the direction you're going here, but are we being picky a little bit, just slightly? Oh, I, yeah. I I want to think about it before I kind of completely weigh in. Please do. I oh. do get what you're saying, and that we go down this slippery slope of actually. And I said I I, I mentioned this in our um our live show with SAE was that there is going to be all different kinds of autonomous washing that happens. Mm. Um, not just the capability of the vehicle, but um, by naming and branding things a certain way or um, talking about it or boosting what it it promises to change this, create this utopian world, that's a different form of autonomous washing, which is making, you know, putting a gleam on something that maybe isn't totally perfect. So I can I I'm I'm sensitive to language and how it is described. I'm just not so sure that if calling something a driver is problematic or not. I'll give we you should an ask the audience. Audience we, weighs in and and tells us what they think. Um, you know, we sh- I'll give you an example of where it might go south to name your thing you know, AI driver or whatever. In the future, in the real the realistic future of autonomy. Vehicles will be deployed in a variety of places. Level four will start in X, Y, and Z places, and then there'll be geofences. The fences will expand like olive oil creeping across a plate full of crumbs and, uh, or a spiderweb being built. So uh, you call your thing – I'm just going to – I don't want to pick on any one company, but let's just say the, the Waymo driver. Um, Waymo – you're in a Waymo or uh, an Aurora, and you reach the, end, the edge of the fence. Your product is called the Waymo driver. Um, it, the first tweet to come out of uh, out of some skeptic is going to be like, the Waymo driver sucks. Waymo driver can't go any further. 
oh wow, I really was disappointed. But if you said, if if you, you know, but you don't say things like my black and decker, like my tool couldn't go any further. Well, of course not. You were told. You were told. Well, but isn't that just how you communicate the capabilities or the limitations of the system and less about. I think, it be, I, I think it needs to be built into the, you leave something open-ended. You set people up for disappointment, their disappointment. You close, which is where full self-driving is flawed as a brand name for a tech, which isn't anyway, I think I've, I would love to hear your thoughts on this and the audiences after you've noodled and we should do that episode. We should call that episode a ton of noodle. So I think I, I do think that it is, you know, we, it's sort of related to a broader, right? Like just the, the, the nomenclature challenge. Nomenclature is so hard in this space for, for a bunch of different reasons. But um, I think, it, you know, it's hard enough to get people to call um, a, an, a, an autonomous or automated driving system rather than uh, an automated vehicle. Um, you know, and there is a distinction between the two. Um, an ADS doesn't even necessarily have to be in a, a, a vehicle, right? Uh, I mean, obviously, to drive, you need some kind of vehicle, but there's a distinction between the system and the vehicle. And certainly, it's easier to think about it accurately if you think of it as not just being a vehicle, but as something distinct. And, and what it does that other vehicles don't do is drive itself. And so I, I'm, I'm personally a little, like, of all of the, the nomenclature challenges out there, I don't know that that this is necessarily the biggest one. And in fact, I think in some ways it might be helpful to kind of get people away from just thinking about this technology as a car that drives itself because it's not, it's, it's the, the ADS is, is really something fundamentally different than that. And in a lot of ways, you know, exists independently of the vehicle. Right. Um, it makes people think of the system as opposed to the vehicle. As opposed to the vehicle. Right. And and because the vehicle is another form of anthropomorphization, right? If you're saying this vehicle is driving itself, well, that's not really accurate either, right? And then, then you say my, you know, Ford Taurus didn't, you know, wasn't able to drive itself well. Uh, and then there's challenges around that too. So um, I think that the, the companies that are using this term driver, um, they seem to be a little bit more positioned as not necessarily, well, so I guess, yeah, Waymo is, is, is very consumer facing at this point, at least in, in, uh, I kind of had thought of it more as a B2B sort of uh, way to to describe um, what they're what they're selling rather than B2C, but um, maybe that's not right. Well, um, I think that we'll have to noodle on this and have an Atana noodle episode in the future. But if you are a listener, reach out, tell us what you think is the term driver problem or not. And send your tweets to us at, um, on Twitter at the Atanacast. Um, and yeah, we'll be curious to see what, uh, what you all have to say on that. And on that note, thank you once again for listening to another episode of the Atonicast. Cast.